This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We are following our yearly tradition of having a debate in this program every year, and this year a very interesting debate about the challenge in selecting candidates for liver transplantation um, with problems with addiction. So the debate is between obesity versus alcohol, so it's eating versus drinking. Uh, and participating in the debate, oh, they're already for, okay, will be uh, Danielle Brandman and uh, Dr. Chris Fries. So Danielle Brandman is really uh, one of the most outstanding clinicians in our group very successful uh, educator as well as clinical instructor, um, as clinical investigator with uh, special focus in fatty liver disease, and she'll be uh, directing the effort in setting up a multidisciplinary fatty liver clinic in the very near future. She's also the associate director of the Transplant Hepatology Fellowship Program at UCSF. And uh, battling Danielle is... Dr. Chris Fries, that we have introduced, currently the interim director of the uh, liver transplant, uh, the transplant surgery program. So um, should be very fun debate, and I can't wait for this to start. And the stage is yours. Who's starting first? Okay, Danielle. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Francis, and thank you all of you for being here. Um, So we chose this topic kind of as a replay from last year's ASLD academic debates. So uh, the format will be, I will present my side for 10 minutes. Dr. Fries will present his case uh, for 10 minutes. We will each have two minutes for rebuttals, and then we'll open up discussion for audience questions. So just to present the cases, we have patient one a 55-year-old woman with decompensated NASH cirrhosis who is undergoing evaluation for liver transplantation. She has had multiple hospitalizations over the past year, and her liver disease has been complicated by refractory ascites, encephalopathy that's generally well-controlled, as well as a remote history of variceal bleeding. Her MELD score at the time of evaluation is 36 and it's composed of a bilirubin of 41, sodium 129, creatinine 0.7, and INR of 3.7. She has blood type A. Her BMI is currently 42. She has had several prior unsuccessful attempts at weight loss, and her other past medical history is notable for diabetes with no end organ damage, a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5, hypertension, and a history of hyperlipidemia. Patient number two, also a 55-year-old woman with decompensated alcohol-related cirrhosis who is also undergoing evaluation for transplant. Like patient one, she has had multiple hospitalizations over the past year, and coincidentally, her hepatic decompensating events are exactly the same, as is her MELD score and the components. What differs is that she has a long-standing history of alcohol abuse with multiple prior attempts to stop drinking, with her last drink being just about three months ago. So, I will pose to the audience 
first, before we begin our debate, which patient is the better candidate for liver transplantation? Patient one, the 55-year-old woman with NASH metabolic syndrome and morbid obesity, or patient two, the 55-year-old woman with alcohol-related cirrhosis and limited sobriety? So, show of hands, who votes that we should transplant patient one? And you can't say both, by the way. <laughs> so patient one, hands up. Okay. And who votes for patient two? Oh, okay. Well, it really seems as though I have my uh, work cut out for me, so here we go. The patient with NASH and metabolic syndrome is an excellent candidate for liver transplantation. Now, Whitney Houston said that she believed that children are our future. I believe that NASH and obese patients are actually our future of liver transplantation. If we are to say no to the obese patient with NASH cirrhosis, we are saying no to the future of liver transplantation. We know that obesity is becoming more and more prevalent in the U.S., and we're seeing that reflected in our liver transplant candidate pool. On the left, you can see the graph of patients listed for transplant, and the prevalence of obesity has increased over time, including those who are morbidly obese in the darkest bars. And on the right, you see that we are actually transplanting more and more obese patients over time, again, including those who are morbidly obese. We also know that NASH is the future of liver transplantation, with it currently being the number two indication for transplant, and it may become the number one indication in the coming years. We also have seen that several studies have demonstrated that obese patients have greater need for liver transplant. A recently published uh, paper looking at patients in UNOS demonstrated that patients who have a BMI of at least 40 have higher risk of acute unchronic liver failure. So we really heard a beautiful talk from Dr. Sherman earlier this morning and understanding that the patient with ACLF is quite ill. And again, the patient with BMI of 40 and above is sicker because they experience ACLF more frequently than those who have lower BMIs. We've also seen in looking at UNOS data that patients who have a BMI of at least 40 have a higher risk of weightless dropout, being second only to patients who have low BMI of under 20. This risk is particularly amplified in the patient who has NASH plus a BMI of greater than or equal to 40. The patients who have alcohol-related liver disease may need transplant less than our NASH patient. Given that data just presented this past week by one of our former fellows showed that the alcohol-related uh, patients had a lower risk of uh, weightless removal due to dying or being too sick for transplant. Now, once we transplant these patients, we see that the post-transplant outcomes for patients with NASH are excellent. And this has also been demonstrated in UNOS. This is the most recent look at the data, comparing it with groups of patients without hepatitis C, so really reflecting the contemporary cohort of transplant patients. And you see that the patients who have NASH, there's no difference uh, compared with the other indications. 
And while there are a lot of misconceptions out there that obese patients do poorly after transplant, that's based on a lot of single-center data as well as older data. We do a good job of selecting these patients for transplant, and their outcomes are really reflected in the UNOS data showing that there is no difference in outcome in patients who have high BMI. And when you look at even the sickest patients who have MELD score greater than 26 and they have a BMI of at least 40, there is no difference in post-transplant outcomes within this patient group. And in fact, it's really the low BMI patients who do poorly after transplant. So I think we really have to stop thinking about the concept of BMI because it's not telling us the whole story. There are several studies demonstrating that factors such as visceral adiposity, sarcopenia, and frailty, which we just heard about in detail today, are much more important predictors of post-transplant outcomes. And if we are telling these patients to try to lose weight when they are already decompensated, we're going to amplify the risk factors of sarcopenia and frailty and make their outcomes even worse. Thankfully, we have several tools at our disposal to ensure that our patients who are obese have metabolic syndrome or NASH have good outcomes. Data was presented this past week also at ASLD, looking at control of metabolic syndrome, and specifically, control of blood pressure to within guidelines of less than 140 over 90 was associated with a lower incidence of major cardiovascular events as well as all-cause mortality. So something as simple as good primary care can actually improve the outcomes of these high-risk patients. We've also seen that bariatric surgery can be used at the time of liver transplantation in patients who are unable to lose weight. And the Mayo Group published their five-year long-term outcomes, showing that the patients who underwent bariatric surgery did well post-transplant, and they had a reduction in post-transplant diabetes, hypertension, and metabolic syndrome. We are interested in pursuing this at UCSF, and we've actually done one combined liver transplant and sleeve gastrectomy, and that patient is doing well so far. So we're off to a good start. So now, hopefully I've given you an idea that the patient uh, who is obese and has NASH is going to do well after transplant, and the data supports that. And now I'm going to tell you why the patient who has less than six months sobriety is not a good candidate for transplant. So what started this discussion? It used to be universally accepted that a patient has to have six months of sobriety before transplant. Well, this paper from about seven years ago from the French group published in the New England Journal started this debate. Since then, there have been several U.S. groups that have looked at this issue as well. But if you actually look at the numbers, who is being evaluated and who's a candidate for transplant, it'll become clear that it is very resource-intensive and low-yield to evaluate patients for transplant if the sobriety is less than six months. In these cohorts, only about 10% of the candidates who had sobriety less than six months were eventually eligible for transplant. Additionally, the risk of return to drinking is unacceptably high and associated with poor post-transplant outcomes. 
with harmful sustained drinking occurring in up to 33% of these recipients, and it is associated with poor post-transplant survival. So let's just think about that for a minute. Let's take 100 patients who have alcohol-associated liver disease and less than six months sobriety. Only 10 may be eligible for transplant. And then if you factor in the return to harmful drinking, by rounding up to seven rather than six, seven will remain alive and will not be drinking heavily. So we have this large group of high-risk patients that have the potential to prevent good liver transplant candidates from accessing care and will result in few successful transplants. Now, when I think about when I am on service, the hospital is full. I can't get even our waitlisted patients into the hospital. If we are filling beds with 100 patients, 93 of whom are not good candidates for transplant, I would argue that we're wasting our efforts. The other potential is for decreasing the already inadequate deceased donor pool in response to transplanting this risky patient population. And there have been several surveys that have demonstrated lower acceptance of the concept of early transplant for alcoholic liver disease. In summary, the obese patient with NASH should be transplanted. She is at high risk of death without transplant. UNO's data shows she will do well after transplant. The patient with less than six months of sobriety is at an unacceptable risk of return to harmful drinking, which will result in poor outcomes. Evaluating patients like this for transplant will place too large of a tax on the system, which has the potential to harm other patients on the waiting list and even getting patients onto the waiting list. Our donor pool may also shrink in response to transplanting this patient population. Now, we think, when we think about some of the ethical concepts at play, we see that obese patients have high risk of weightless mortality. They have high urgency, but they do very well post-transplant, so utility is high as well, and this results in high survival benefit in the obese liver transplant candidate. Additionally, transplanting the obese patient with NASH really demonstrates the concept of justice in that it provides benefit to the transplant community without adding burden to the system, like the alcohol patient with less than six months sobriety. So the future really is NASH obese patients. I want you to say yes to the future of NASH because you're saying yes to transplant if you do. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Danielle. That was a very compelling uh, argument as to why the high BMI NASH patient should be chosen over um, uh, patients with uh, short-duration sobriety. Um, you know, I want to help everybody, obviously. We all do, I think. Um, the, the real issue here is we have one liver, and we have to choose between these two patients. So as I see it, at least, we need to, to think about which of these two Patience is going to give us the best outcome with that one precious liver that we have. 
So as uh, Danielle mentioned, um, the evolution of transplantation for alcohol liver disease dates way back to the early days of transplantation, when in fact it was thought to be a little bit crazy to transplant anyone with alcohol as a cause of, of liver failure. That all changed when, uh, patient, when patients were transplanted and began to have good results. In 1983, a consensus conference said it was a reasonable indication if, if the patient was likely to abstain from alcohol use. In uh, 1988, Starzl published excellent results for that era, 73% one-year transplant survival for, for alcohol-related liver disease with a very low relapse rate. Uh, and again, through the 90s, uh, through various workshops and consensus conferences, the indications for alcohol as a, a, a potential candidate for transplantation continued to grow. However, there's always been this um, idea that some period of time of sobriety was essential to choosing the right candidates. And I think most programs adopted the six-month rule as a, as a standard. So we've used it uh, ever since I've been involved in the program at least. Um, a six-month period of abstinence is mandatory. You know, we literally take that down to the day. Um, we uh, have other tools that we try and use to look at the assessment for risk of recidivism. Uh, if you look at um, the literature in terms of recidivism, even using the six-month rule, you still get a fair number of patients that return to some use of alcohol, but in general, it's not a great number that return to significant drinking that damages their liver. And, of course, if you look at outcomes, graft and patient outcomes for alcohol-related liver disease, the results are, are generally quite excellent. So why do we have to be careful about this? So obviously alcohol is a hepatotoxin and, and certainly damage to the new graft will happen if patients abuse alcohol after transplant. Uh, it may interfere with their ability to take their medicines if they're not paying attention to their general medical care. And I think we have to demonstrate to the public that we're good stewards of, the or, of organs. And certainly uh, many in the public, when they think of, of cirrhosis, they immediately think of a patient who's been abusing alcohol. And if we do those patients and they go back to using alcohol, I think we run the risk of damaging the public trust. So this is an important issue to get right. And I think what we're missing and what we can do better on is really assessing risk uh, in a better way. Um, you know, there's several tools that are out there. Again, the, the um, uh, broad uh, thing of just saying six months of sobriety is, is often used, but there's really no great data that says that is, is a hard line that needs to be drawn in the sand. Well, we all know this CAGE questionnaire. This is probably the most primitive way to just determine that your potential patient may have problems with alcohol. Um, and the waiting period, as I mentioned, is sort of what a lot of programs use as the next uh, level of, of uh, hoops for patients to jump through. It does have some advantages, certainly. It, it demonstrates that they're going to be adherent to the program's uh, medical regimen. Um, it will uh, prove that they can stay away from alcohol. Uh, it may also allow for assessment of uh, uh, recovery of liver function in a patient who avoids the hepatotoxin. Um, but again, the six-month period is not evidence-based, and I think with other assessments, you could certainly think about a shorter waiting time. So there are other tools out there. Uh, this is one from the Ohio uh, um, uh, Consortium of Transplant Centers that basically 
serves to stratify patients who might have very low um, periods of sobriety uh, being assessed for transplant. And they come up with a scoring system that assesses what their risk would be if you proceeded with transplant uh, in, in within a month of their last drink, which would be the lowest risk category, all the way up to the higher risk patients who would require a longer period of observation to make sure that they're remaining good candidates. So just using six months, I think, is a very primitive tool, and there's better ways out there to assess that risk. And outcomes, as I mentioned, are excellent. If you look at the, uh, the purple curve, it's alcohol liver disease. And again, it's the uh, number two indication. I'm sure it's going to be passed by NASH the way um, the, the waiting list is beginning to look. And outcomes, again, in purple is uh, transplant for alcohol liver disease. It does as well as any other uh, uh, indication, and this is uh, UNOS data over, over many years. So outcomes are excellent. But the real question is what happens when you start to push the envelope and use patients who have shorter waiting time? And I'll thank Dr. Tarot for this slide. This is like the best. This is the winner right here. If you look at uh, this particular report, which actually looked at uh, patients, uh, some of many of whom had alcoholic hepatitis and were transplanted in a very rapid fashion, you can see the survival at one year was 94%. We can't do better with that outcome for any other indication for liver transplantation. Three-year survival of 84%, absolutely outstanding. And these are, these are the highest-risk patients in terms of return to drinking because they were transplanted very quickly after their presentation. And you can see their return to alcohol use, sustained alcohol use, which is what we really worry about. We don't worry so much about the, the sip of alcohol and then a return to sobriety when they, they think about it the next day and get some help. We're worried about the patients that, that continue to abuse alcohol and damage their new graft. At least in this study, that was only 10% of the cohort at, at one year and only 17% at three years. And again, I would argue that there's opportunities for intervention in these patients who are trying to return to alcohol and reversing their behavior. So, again, this summarizes what the, what the return to alcohol patients looked like. There were 40 out of the cohort that returned to alcohol, but most of them were just little slips, and only 15 of the patients had sustained alcohol use. So, again, not, not as dim uh, an outlook as uh, Dr. Brandman indicated. So why shouldn't we be giving this liver to the patient with uh, high BMI? Well, I'm a little biased. I'm the surgeon. I'm the one that has to do the operation. And I'm the one that has to watch the patient try and recover afterwards and worry about our handiwork, um, you know, turning into major complications. So one of the biggest things we worry about in our program is mobility. I mean, these, these patients who are morbidly obese have a much more difficult time getting out of bed. It's much more difficult to mobilize them with, with the help of the lift teams and the, and the various physical therapists. So that's a real challenge. And, of course, that translates into pulmonary complications when they can't get out of bed after a major operation. And clearly there's plenty of data out there that indicates a much higher risk of significant pulmonary complications. Just doing any interventions becomes challenging. Fitting them into a scanner, having interventional radiology do their procedures should they be needed, becomes more challenging. 
Doesn't mean we can't do it, but compared to the other patient who uh, is much more easy to handle afterwards, I think I would favor doing the patient with alcohol. There's certainly wound healing issues. The hernia rate is through the roof on these patients. Wound infection issues are much higher. And then, of course, we have to address the ongoing issue of the metabolic syndrome. Obviously, if we can staple their stomach at the time of surgery, we may alter that that course, but there are certainly many patients who don't have that done and continue to have their diabetes, their hyperlipidemia, and the risk for recurrent disease. If you look at morbid obesity um, and outcome, there's a lot of papers out there. I found at least 16 studies. They're about split as to whether they do better or worse than patients with lower BMI. This is one of the more commonly quoted ones. If you want to build a case against doing the morbidly obese, you can see the 30-day mortality is 12% versus 7% or 6% in the non-obese, so clearly higher risk. Um, There are other studies, I think you showed some slides from this one, um, that indicate that low uh, BMI is more dangerous than high BMI. But again, the important thing to remember in these studies is that the patients that are getting done, and you can see the class 3 obese in this particular study, is only 3% of the cohort. These are highly selected. I mean, these are patients that I'm sure the surgeons wanted to see walk down the hall. They had good general strength, probably not super frail, and were able to get out of bed on their own. Uh, And again, here's another slide that shows uh, maybe not that much difference in results if you look at patient uh, outcomes at three months and and, uh, one year, but clearly there's a trend that the um, class 3 obese patient does less well. And getting back to the idea of recurrence, there's very little information in the literature about that. Um, This particular slide looked at the rate of uh, progression of fibrosis in NASH patients versus hepatitis C patients. And I just like this slide on the demographics because it shows you that 70% of the NASH patients still had diabetes. So why wouldn't we expect that the uh, problems with recurrence are going to be an issue? And in fact, here's over time, and the green is shown the um, Uh, proportion that progressed to advancing fibrosis, and you can see it definitely happens. So the idea of alcohol re-damaging the liver is is the same concept we have to worry about in the patient who has uh, problems with with, uh, obesity damaging the new liver. Uh, And then here's one final study, again, a single-center study comparing uh, their own uh, uh, cohort of patients, the BMI median, and then patients greater than the median. They clearly had uh, worse survival. So I think high BMI candidates uh, are not ideal. I'm not saying we shouldn't do them, but if I had the choice between the two, I would choose the uh, patient with alcohol. There's technical challenges, higher surgical complication rates. So clearly, I think it's, there's enough papers out there that suggest there's decreased long-term survival, and I think the recurrent metabolic syndrome complications are still an issue to worry about, just like the return to alcohol is an issue to worry about. Short-term sobriety, I think, is okay in properly screened patients, and I think we have to use some of these other tools to screen patients more carefully rather than just using a a time of uh, sobriety. So thank you. All right. So I think Chris brought up some very interesting points, but I'm going to shoot a few holes in them right now. So you bring up that uh, patients who are obese do uh, worse after transplant, but that one slide that you just put up, the year was 2002. 
So much about transplant has changed since the year of 2002, and a lot of the papers that have been published, particularly the earlier studies, were single-center studies. So I would caution you against drawing a conclusion about the outcome of morbidly obese patients after transplant on the basis of single-center data and point you back to the recent UNOS data that shows that patients who have BMI greater than 40 do just as well as patients who have lower BMI. The other thing I'd like to point out is that, yes, taking care of a patient who is morbidly obese after transplant is hard. But we're physicians. We run towards, not away from a challenge. So while it might take some more resources to get the patient out of the hospital, ultimately, in the long run, again, looking at national UNOS data, this patient will do well. Another point is that phenotypically, the patients with alcoholic liver disease look almost exactly like the patients with fatty liver. And they have almost identical prevalence of metabolic syndrome after transplant, which translates to similar risk of major cardiovascular events. So we're really ultimately dealing with the same patient after transplant. The other issue is with regard to risk stratification for return to alcohol use after transplant. Yes, there are several tools that are available, but none have really been very well validated in the liver transplant population. Even looking at the most recent multi-center data published by one of our fellows, Brian Lee, we see that the method of selection for these patients to undergo transplant is not uniform. So we have really not identified the end-all, be-all risk score to assess these patients for risk of return to drinking after transplant. And I would also argue that a lot of tools that are, art, that are out there run the risk of discriminating against patients who may be of lower socioeconomic status and who may not be English-speaking. So overall, I think the data show the patients who are transplanted and who are obese do well in the long run. UNOS has showed us that. I'm willing to consider transplanting a patient for alcoholic liver disease, but only when we have well-validated risk assessments that are objective and fair to all of our potential transplant candidates. I don't know. I always get into these jams trying to argue against really smart people. So those, those, are, uh, those are all great arguments, no question. I think, um, you know, as I said at the beginning of my talk, I'm not against um, transplanting the high BMI patients. And I think you're absolutely right that they are the future of transplant now that we've essentially uh, conquered hepatitis C. Um, and, and clearly there are metabolic issues that are very similar between the two. But, but again, you have to remember I have my surgeon hat on. And, um, you know, when I was a fellow and you would see the, the alcoholic patient with the belly full of ascites and an abdominal wall that's about a half a centimeter thick, um, it was hard to keep, keep from salivating about what a beautiful transplant that's going to be from a purely technical view. And, and I think, you know, taking care of those patients afterwards w was also pretty straightforward. The patient who has a six-inch thick abdominal wall with visceral fat that gets in the way of putting in a liver, um, you know, definitely adds to the surgical challenges and, and, as I stated, does lead to higher complication rates afterwards. And another consideration is, you know, when we um, are 
asked to look at an obese patient, you know, we always feel under the ribs, and it always feels fine. And working in the upper abdomen is fine. But remember, many of these patients may end up sick in the ICU and need kidney transplants. And when you start to talk about getting exposure to put in a kidney in a panis that um, is, is in the way, it becomes very, very challenging. So, again, I'm looking at this a lot from the, the um, technical aspects of, of doing a successful transplant. And, again, I'll get back to my original argument that we want to pick which of these two scenarios are going to give us the best uh, early outcome and best long-term outcome. I would still argue let's go with the alcohol. Thanks. Thank you very much. I completely agree with both of you. <laughs> um, can we split the liver? Can we do a split? No. Well, that's, that's but I also completely disagree with both of you. I think HCC is the future of liver <laughs> transplant. So, questions from the audience? Yes, please. So, um, so if a patient also, yeah, so the question was how does smoking and other substance abuse play into your decision making? So if the patient has a history of using other substances, that increases their risk of return to harmful drinking. If they're smoking, that increases their risk of major cardiovascular events. Now, a lot of our patients who have a history of alcohol abuse also have a history of other substance use as well as smoking. So thank you for bringing up that excellent point for why my patient is better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. difference actually about, um, you know, we don't want to transplant a frail, morbidly obese patient because they can't move. Um, And then on the other hand, I don't want to transplant a frail, alcoholic patient because then they will be too malnourished after transplant. So um, before your excellent work, you know, we had this thing called the eyeball test. You kind of alluded to that before. (laughs) And I can tell you, eyeballs popping out of your head is not a positive eyeball test. You want to be able to look at a patient and and say they look good, not, oh, my goodness, how am I going to, you know, physically work with this patient uh, in the operating room? How are they going to get out of bed? So, you know, I, frailty on top of either one of these patients is, is, is a real issue, but the patient that can't walk just because of the physical uh, demands of carrying around that extra weight, I think is a much higher risk patient than a you know, a thinner alcoholic who may have lost some muscle. And, and again, physical therapy, I mean, this is a reality. Physical therapy is going to have a much easier time with the patient that takes just two people to get out of bed. Agreed. Frailty is an important predictor of post-transplant outcome. For the purposes of this case, we're going to assume the frailty status is the same. Um, but know that you know, we do want to assess frailty in these patients because it is such an important predictor. Okay, so I have to say a few words about alcohol. So, so I knew just, you would. Yeah, well, <laughs> feel, feel obliged. Um, I, would, I would highlight that the, the paper that Chris um, highlighted is a highly selected group of patients with alcoholic hepatitis. But it does make the point that we have to think differently about patients with alcohol. It shows that in a highly selected group of patients, you can have excellent outcomes. So there's no doubt survival is excellent, and the return to harmful drinking is actually no different 
than those patients that you make do six months of sobriety and then go through transplant. So if you look at harmful drinking, patterns are the same. But they're highly selective, and so I'm, I don't think we should open the floodgates, but this should point us towards where we want to go. You know, alcohol has been highly stigmatized, and we need to break down that stigma and start thinking about it as a health issue, just like overeating is a health issue. And we need to think about strategies in order to kind of allow more patients to get access to a life-saving therapy. Um, so I would just, you know, I'm on, yeah, you know where I'm coming from. But, but really, <laughs> I would say it's time to start thinking about it a bit differently. And, and I think this is a really well-posed debate because it points to sort of two kinds of behaviors, eating and drinking. And I think we, in one way, horribly stigmatize one and not the other. And I think we need to change that. Yeah, uh, agreed. Again, I, I'm open to the future um, where we're looking at these patients, but I, I just don't think that the tools that we have right now are really good enough to be objective and fair for the potential patients who are going to be transplant candidates. And we know that if these patients are offered rehab post-transplant or other support measures, that they will do better. But we have to think about the issue of access to care particularly for our patients who may be insured by their county Medi-Cal where they may not have the same health care resources. And also to your point about this being a very select patient population, I think we really have to think about the issue of implicit bias playing a role in our patient selection and how that may discriminate against certain patient groups. Well, I'll just, I'll just add that, you know, I would have um, less interest even in doing the high BMI patient if it wasn't for Danielle and her interests. Because I think having, having a team that's uh, devoted to the post-transplant um, management of the metabolic syndrome and, and all of its complications is really what's going to be needed here. Much the same way for the um, patients with, with alcohol and early, uh, you know, short sobriety, we probably need a very robust um, uh, social work and psychiatry team and addiction specialists. So the, the post-operative cares are very different, but I think if you can establish those, those groups of caregivers, probably we could have excellent outcomes in, in, both, in both areas because, uh, you know, NASH is going to be uh, more commonly an indication, and I'm glad we have Danielle to build on that. I've got job security. Yeah. Just to, I think, emphasize what, a point you've just made, in fact, Chris, is that you both emphasize that the future of transplantation lies in the transplantation of probably both of these categories of extremely challenging patients. And as you point out also, Chris, this translates into the fact that the future of transplantation is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Indeed, I think the important thing to focus on is that the future of transplantation probably lies in the partnerships that it forms now with committed primary care and addiction medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think that will be the way uh, going forward. I think uh, you'd agree with that. Yep, absolutely. <clears throat> That's a really excellent point. Uh, one last question. find out if they're a candidate and how that could you know, fill up your beds for your transplant center, keep the people that need to come in that maybe even have an offer from getting a bed, and how do you weigh that against you know, the complications that happen from transplanting someone that has a BMI well above 40, the prolonged hospitalizations that happen, the cardiac events that happen, 
post-transplant, um, and you know that using more resources and time and bed uh, space for your transplant center. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a fair point. Um, but I think if you really look at the numbers of patients who come in for transplant and have a BMI over 40 and/or metabolic syndrome, those numbers are much smaller than the potential patients who have severe alcoholic hepatitis um, or uh, have sobriety less than six months. So I think we're really dealing with kind of a, a really a different scope in terms of the volume of patients. Yeah, I mean, I would just add if, if we get to the <clears throat> point where we're doing, you know, patients with short uh, sobriety or alcoholic hepatitis, we're not going to have a flashing sign on the front of the hospital say, send us your your, uh, you know, patients who have alcohol disease out of control. I mean, there's going to have to be some protocols written for community screening to make sure we're, you know, trying to, to funnel down to the right set of patients that have a realistic chance of moving forward. So, you know, I, I think uh, we could overwhelm the system with, with either one of these uh, candidates if we don't design, at least initially, the, the protocols properly to, to, to get patients that we think will have a good chance of making it through the whole, the whole uh, ordeal. <clears throat> so um, both talks are truly uh, incredible, I thought. But, uh, but I, I think that uh, it's important for us to get the feedback from all of you as referring physicians, what's your opinion on this very controversial issue? So it's not a reflection of how good the uh, individuals are putting together. I want to get us a kind of a sense. Who would transplant a patient with uh, alcoholic liver disease less than three months of abstinence? Okay. Who would transplant the other one? Oh, it's kind of... Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's like so. a tie to me. Yes. Okay. Of you thank you. <laughs> All, right. Uh, All right. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.